0: with me to Luke chapter 15. God does indeed love the song of the redeemed, rejoices to hear those who are lost, uh, respond in in worship of him. And that's what we're looking at in Luke 15 is the the joy that God finds in the lost, repenting, and the joy that, that we should find as well. And we've made our way through the first two parables in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And this morning, as we come to verse 11, we see the, the parable, uh, the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son. We'll talk about that title for this parable as we, we look through it over the next few weeks. But if you've made your way to Luke 15 and you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. Luke 15 Beginning in verse 11, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. May we be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. Let's pray that God would continue to bless us as, this morning as we worship him through the study of his word. And Father, that is our request this morning. that You would grant us the ability to, to worship you. You would allow us, those who have, have been lost and separated from you, that you would allow us to engage in worship of you through repentance and, and faith in you. Help us to have hearts that are, that are quickened, that are able to respond to you. And give us a, a good time of fellowship this morning. We pray this. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We continue making our way through Luke chapter 15. We began looking at this. This is our our third Sunday to be in Luke 15. The first Sunday that we are here, we looked at the, the setting of the parables that Jesus is going to tell. We saw the story that kind of serves as the frame story for these parables. What's happened is that Jesus is receiving sinners, that people are coming to Jesus, tax collectors and sinners are are coming to Jesus and and listening to his teaching. And the Pharisees and the scribes see Jesus's response to these tax collectors and sinners, and they they grumble. And as they see his response to them, they say, this man receives, that is, he, he welcomes, he embraces sinners, and he eats with them, that is, he fellowships with them. And Jesus knows the condition of the Pharisees' hearts, the scribes' hearts, and he realizes that these scribes and Pharisees are upset that lost people are coming to him. And the three parables that follow are a reaction to these hard-hearted scribes and Pharisees. And the main theme of Luke chapter 15 that we've looked at over the, the, the previous two Sundays that we've studied this passage is that we should rejoice when the lost repent. We set that up the first Sunday that we looked at Luke 15. We should rejoice when the lost repent. And yet last Sunday, what we saw as we looked at the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, In the parable of the lost coin, and we saw that that one of the reasons that we should rejoice when the lost repent is that the lost have value, they are precious. And if a person has no sense of the value of the lost, then of course they're not going to respond with rejoicing when the lost are found. But a person who thinks like God thinks, who believes like God believes, realizes that lost people have value, they are precious to our Heavenly Father, and when they are found, heaven rejoices. You and I should see the value in lost and rejoice when the lost repent. And this week and in the following two Sundays, Lord willing, we're going to be spending those three Sundays looking at this last and, and arguably most important parable of the three, the, the parable of this return of this the Son to his father. We're going to spend one week looking at the younger son. Then we're going to spend a week looking at the father. And then we're going to spend a week looking at the older son. And I believe it's as we look at the older son, we see perhaps the the main thrust of, of what Jesus wants people to consider as he tells this story. But as we look at each of these characters, we gain a very valuable insight into why you and I should rejoice when the lost repent. This morning, as we look at the younger son, whose story consumes the first part of the parable, as we look at the story of the younger son, we see something very important about the nature and the beauty of repentance. We've been saying that you and I should rejoice when the lost repent, but but what exactly is repentance? Repentance. What makes repentance so wonderful? What makes repentance so beautiful? What I hope that you gain as we go through this part of the parable this morning is an appreciation for what repentance is, what it looks like, and why it is so precious to God. We've encountered repentance before in the Gospel of Luke. We, we saw it very early on as John the Baptist called people to repentance. We talked about repentance there. We've seen repentance in verse 7 and verse 10 here in Luke chapter 15 that the lost are found, the lost repent. And this morning we're going to focus again on this issue of repentance and why it's so beautiful and why it's so precious. And I hope that you have a greater understanding of repentance as you walk out than you did when you walked in this morning. Uh, there on the, the screen behind me, you see a, a portion of a very famous painting by Rembrandt. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I have a, a print of this masterpiece in my, my study. And if you came to the farmhouse and you walked into my study and, and you saw it and you said, uh, Daniel, why do you have that, that picture on your wall? Can you, can you tell me something about it? And I would say, well, yes, I, I would love to. Uh, it makes the place look classy. It's it's a masterpiece. Um, don't you know anything? No, I would say um, I would say yes. I I, I do enjoy the, this picture, and, and here's what it means to me. It's, it's pretty. I like it. Looks nice. And what it reminds me of is, is a few things as people come into my study to talk with me. One, it reminds me that that uh, all of us should be happy whenever lost people respond rightly to God. It also reminds me of of the lavish grace that God has. Uh, God is a God who who welcomes the lost sinner and and is always extending his arms to those who are lost, ready to receive them. And so the comfort that I believe it it provides me and people that I talk with is that, look, you can be a a son who returns to your heavenly father and he will always gladly receive you. And so as you walked out of the study, you would have kind of a a very vague understanding of this picture. You'd understand a little bit about it. You know the guy named Rembrandt painted it, but that's that's about it. Now, in college, I had a roommate who was an art history major, and you may wonder, is he still alive? Did he find work? Um, yes. He, he runs a taekwondo studio, so that's what you do with an art history major, but I was worried about him in college, what he was going to do, but he, he knew a lot of things about about paintings. And if he were in my study and you came in and and he was there and you asked him about the picture, here's what he would tell you. He would tell you things about Rembrandt and about the time period in which he lived. He would tell you at what phase of his career he painted this masterpiece. He would tell you about the lighting. He'd tell you about the shading. He'd tell you about the subjects that Rembrandt used. He'd tell you how he was playing upon themes that you'd see in other contemporary works or how he was, he was deviating from standard practices and some of the things that he was doing. In short, you would leave not only understanding something about the title of the picture and who painted it, you would have a deep appreciation for why, This was a masterpiece. You would see the beauty in this picture that that I can't see because I I don't know all the things that my college roommate knows about art and about why this is a beautiful painting. When it comes to repentance, some of us may know a couple things about repentance. We may have kind of a a vague understanding that repentance is, is when you're doing something wrong, not doing something wrong anymore what I hope happens this morning as we delve into the depths of the theology of repentance, as we see repentance in the life of this prodigal son, that we would have a greater appreciation for the beauty of repentance, why we should so desperately desire to see repentance in our own lives and the lives of others, and why we should respond with joy and rejoicing and celebration whenever lost people turn from sin and turn to God. That's what I hope happens as we go through this first part of this story this morning. Before we actually get to the story, there's a a few more things that I want to say about repentance before we we dive into it. One thing is, I think it's important for us to understand that there are some very uh, wrong conceptions about repentance that sometimes Allow, don't allow us to understand the doctrine of repentance rightly. For example, some churches may teach that repentance is a, a process. In other words, a person might say, well, I, I'm repenting, and what they're meaning is I'm, I'm going through a, a, a series of steps in order to show people how sorry I am for sin, and, and they're calling that repentance. That's, that's not repentance. That can be a fruit of repentance, but, but simply going through a lot of uh, steps and actions isn't repentance itself. Another example of a wrong understanding of repentance is, is what you find in the, the Roman Catholic Church. If you look up the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you'll, you'll find a very good definition of repentance in, in the back as they define terms. They'll, they rightly define repentance as changing one's mind about sin and then turning from it. But as you read the fuller teaching in the Catechism about the doctrine of repentance, unfortunately, it very it gets it gets tied in with with acts of penance, with the sacrament of penance. And so, what happens is this system develops for a person who wants to show that they're repentant, by which they receive forgiveness not just from God, but they receive uh, forgiveness from God, as the Catechism says, through the prayer and ministry of the Church. And so, there's the sacrament of penance where a person has to ask uh, the priest for Absolution; They have to in, get engaged in almsgiving. There's, there's these, these deeds that they need to do in order for true repentance to, to bear fruit, for them to receive the full effects of repentance. And I think that leads to a wrong understanding of the doctrine of repentance as well. What we're going to see as we look at Luke 15 is what we've seen before. That repentance kind of involves three things, and, and these are, are, are things that kind of have some overlapping effects, but, but one thing that happens as a person repents is there's an intellectual understanding that an activity is sinful. Maybe a person has been in, engaged in, in cheating their, their business partner, and they come to an intellectual understanding, hey, this thing that I've been doing is wrong. It's, it's an intellectual understanding. This is not in accordance with what God desires me to do. Then there's an emotional component to repentance. There's an emotional component where a person says, this action that I've been engaged in, I, I don't desire it anymore. I, I'm emotionally uh, upset that I've been involved in this, and I, and I don't have a desire to, to participate in it anymore. And then there's this, this decision of the will, this third component, where a person decides I'm turning from this action, turning away from it toward God. That's repentance. Now, when we talk about conversion, a person becoming a Christian, let me just caution you with this. A person cannot become a Christian without repenting. You say, wait, wait, hold on, Daniel. I, I thought that a person was saved by faith alone. That's absolutely right. And yet faith is always accompanied by repentance. Repentance. A person cannot place their faith in Jesus without turning from their sin, without repenting of their sin. Let me give you an example of this, a couple examples of this. In Isaiah 55, verse 6, we see Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he's near. So there's this idea of faith, of trust, believing in God, placing one's trust in God, calling out upon him, believing in him. Then he, then he ties that with repentance. Verse 7 says, and as you do that, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. So how can you seek the Lord? How can you place your, your faith in God? Well, What you have to do is you have to understand that you have placed your faith, as Hebrews calls it, in in dead works. And so in order to turn to God, you have to turn away from something. So faith and repentance are kind of like, uh, it's been described as two sides of the same coin. As you believe in Jesus, as you place your trust in God, you are turning away from your sins. An illustration I've used before is imagine you have this this big rock that you're holding on to and you're, you've fallen into the ocean and someone throws you a life preserver. Well, what do you need to do to be saved? All you need to do is to grab onto that life preserver, but what must you let go of as you do that? You must let go of that boulder so you can wrap your arms around that life preserver. In fact, as we look at Scripture, we see that the New Testament writers use faith and repentance interchangeably or belief and repentance interchangeably sometimes because they are so closely connected. You can't have one without the other. Acts 20, 21 says that Paul, Paul is saying that he testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As a person places their faith in Jesus, they're repenting of their sins. Whenever the crowd asks Peter what shall we do? Peter and the apostles what shall we do as they think about their sin? uh, Peter says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 3.19 he says repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Paul will say when it's to the question, what must we do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Repentance and belief are, are so closely connected, they can sometimes be used interchangeably. They're both describing this process of conversion, where a person, through no works of their own, turns away from dead works toward faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone for their salvation. That's repentance, that's conversion. So, let's dive into the story here and look a little bit about some things about repentance and about sin that help us understand why we should rejoice when the lost repent. The first thing that I want us to consider as we go through these verses is the reality of sin. The reality of sin, look at verse 11 with me if you will. Jesus begins the story saying, now there was a man who had two sons. Let me just stop there for a second and, and notice there are three characters in this story, not just one. Sometimes we call this parable the the parable of the prodigal son, and we we place all our emphasis on this prodigal son and his act of repentance and and how the lost should repent, And, and that's certainly an appropriate application, but it's not the sum totality of the story. There is a younger brother, but notice there's also an older brother, and there's also a man. In fact, the story begins with this man who has two sons. And as we're going to see, very interestingly, The story, we're stopping at verse 20 this morning because that's the end of the story kind of of the first son. But the story keeps going. And after the son says a few more words after verse 20, we don't really hear anything at all from the younger son throughout the rest of the story. His story's over. But we do continue to see what the father does. And then we really continue to see how the older brother responds. So there's this man who has two sons, and we're beginning to look at this first son, the younger son. The younger son comes to his father, and he says to his father some words that are incredibly insulting. He says, Father, father, what I want you to do is give me the share of the property that's coming to me. In other words, uh, Dad, I can't sit around waiting for you to die. The only value you have to me is what I'm going to get from you when you die. So I want you to go ahead and divide the property to me that's coming to me. I want you to divide the property and tell me what's coming to me now. You're better to me dead than alive. And I want to kind of fast forward to the you dying part. I don't know if we can grasp the full insult that is given to the Father here. What you need to understand is that Jesus' listeners would have been shocked out of their minds at what's just taken place. You and I live in a culture in in which, first of all, we we don't live in a a culture that's that's based on the honor system as as much as it was in the first century. But in the first century, honor and shame are, are huge motivators for how one conducts oneself. Secondly, in our culture, we kind of have this expectation of teens. We expect that young people are going to be rebellious. It doesn't shock us whenever young people don't act respectfully to their parents. It doesn't shock us whenever young people say, I don't like you, I don't want to be like you, I'm going to be my own person. That's not shocking to us. It would have been incredibly shocking in that culture. The expectation in that culture is the exact opposite. There's an expectation that a young person is going to honor their father, is going to honor their mother, is going to live in a way that brings honor to their parents. And so this younger son, as he comes to his father, has uh, committed a, a terrible sin in the eyes of the people that Jesus is speaking to. He's shamed his father. He hasn't honored him. And he's demanded from his father his share of the property. That's shocking to Jesus' audience, but not as shocking as what happens next. Because look at the text, what happens next in verse 12. The dad does it. The proper response would have been to to shame the son, to, to as as one's shame is is, is experienced, one when, when, uh, projects it onto the other person, the other person suffers as a result of their failure to to follow the, the honor system, this this code of honor. And so the father should have responded by by disowning the son, by having nothing to do with him, but by, by punishing him. And instead, the text tells us that. He, he agreed with this audacious request, this insulting request of his son. Literally, what the text says is that he divided the life between him. He divided his life between his two sons. And he told his older son, here's what you're going to, to get and the inheritance laws and the uh, the from the Old Testament were very clear about how much of a portion of the estate his son would receive and how much of the portion of the estate his younger son would receive and so he took all of his assets and he said okay this is what's going to go to the older son this is what's going to go to the younger son and then probably what the younger son did is he said okay this is what's coming to me and he went to people and he said look when my, my father dies this is what I get and he sold based on his his future inheritance he probably took a little bit of a loss as he did so as well So then as he takes this money that he's gained from his father's future demise, the text tells us, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So he's insulted his father by telling him he wishes he was dead. He's insulted his father by, by trading in his inheritance for, for, for cash. And then he says, I no longer even desire to be, to be physically present in this household. I'm out of here. Rudyard Kipling wrote a, a poem entitled the, the Prodigal Son. And it's kind of a, uh, an understanding of what might have happened in the prodigal son's heart. This is, is, this poem, it it speaks from the perspective of the prodigal son. And listen to what he says. He says, as, as he thinks about his discontentment here at home, he says, My father glooms and advises me. My brother sulks and despises me. And mother catechizes me till I want to go out and swear. And in spite of the butler's gravity, I know the servants have it. I am a monster of moral depravity. That's the heart condition of this son who seethes as he considers his father's authority and his condition here in the home. This young man wants what so many young people desire. He wants the the freedom from being outside his parental restraints, he wants to engage, and this isn't just in the hearts of young people, in the hearts of, of all people. He, he wants to he wants to indulge in the desires of his flesh. All the things that he's been wanting to do, but he's been restrained from doing, he wants to participate in. And he's so desirous of participating in these activities that he, he leaves his father, he asks his father for his share the inheritance, and then he goes out, and what does the text tell us that he does? The text tells us in verse 13, he leaves his home. He takes a journey into a far-off country where he can do as he please, and there he squandered his property in reckless living, in living recklessly living a life of abandonment and immorality and debauchery. All those things that he's desired to do that he thinks, boy, if I could just engage in this activity, I would be happy and fulfilled. He does it. There's nothing he restrains himself from. He indulges the temptation that so many of us have faced of living a life without the restraints of morality. This is the reality of sin. Uh, This is the reality of sin that lurks within every human heart. The son has insulted and he's rejected his father and his father's morality and his father's life in every way imaginable. It's hard to consider another way in which the son could have insulted his father. And this reckless abandon, this reality of sin, is true of every human heart. A very famous story by uh, Joseph Conrad, The Heart of Darkness, describes this this man named Kurtz and the narrator is talking about this this man named Kurtz and Kurtz is on his deathbed and and this this man Marlow who's describing the scene has has rescued Kurtz and is bringing him back on a ship and and this man Kurtz has done terrible terrible things and and Marlow describes what he sees in Kurtz's face as Kurtz dies he says it was as though a veil had been rent I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power, of craven terror, of an intense and hopeless despair. Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that moment of complete knowledge? He cried in a whisper at some image, some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror The horror, that horror of what lurks within every human heart is the reality of sin. And what this son does is engage in a lifestyle of reckless abandon as he pursues sin with fervor. Four thoughts of application here as we we think about the reality of sin that I want you to consider. Number one, uh, sin is rebellion to God sin at its heart is, is not just something we, we decide to do that our parents don't want us to do or that society doesn't deem acceptable or some really uptight Christians don't like. Sin, I want you to understand, is rebellion to God. Romans one twenty one says that people knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and so they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And so people, as they engage in sin are in rebellion to God uh, secondly what's important to notice here is that sin is not just rebellion to God it's not just some passive well I'm not going to engage in that activity that God wants me to do uh, sin is an attack it's an attack upon the honor and the character of God they did not honor him as God Romans 1 tells us They consider God's character, and they consider what would be proper responses for honoring God. And a person who engages in sin attacks God's honor and his character. The son knows how his father wants him to behave, and he says, I'm not going to do that. And as he refuses to do what his father has called him to do, he is shaming his father. Thirdly, thirdly, we see in Scripture that sin is... Insanity. It's insanity. Ephesians 4 talks about a futile mind darkened in their understanding and so that the human mind that, that decides I'm going to dishonor God and live in a way that's contrary to how he calls me to live is a mind that's, that's operating in a very insane fashion. As you and I decide to, to pursue sin instead of pursuing God, it, it makes no logical sense. Finally, sin... Sin is present in every human heart. Every human heart finds sin within it. So that's the reality of sin. And let's next consider the the result of sin. What happens when a person engages in sin and pursues this lifestyle of sin? Verse 14 tells us, says the son had spent everything and through his his reckless living his foolish living he hasn't lived in accordance with how god has said to to do anything including his finances and as he engages in this reckless lifestyle it says all that he has is gone and then a severe famine arises in that country and as a result of that famine he no longer has the ability to provide for himself I think it's hard for us to understand what a famine looks like in this in this culture really in any culture Uh, you and I uh, famine is something far different for us for me a famine is whenever I I get up in the morning and I open the pantry door and the kids have eaten the last of the Cheerios okay there's famine there's heartache Um, what in the world am I going to eat oh I guess I'll just eat this cereal instead all right or I'll go have to, you know, I'll go to the terrible trouble of having to, to make myself an omelet or something. And uh, Oh, woe is me, famine is here in the Bennett household. Uh, that's not the case, right? A real famine is whenever there's there's no access to food. And in a society where a famine becomes widespread and severe, law, order can break down, theft occurs, cannibalism, I mean, all sorts of terrible things happen as famine strikes. And here, famine strikes the son finds himself in a terrible condition because of his own poor choices and also God's providential decree. And so the son begins to experience shame. He goes out and he hires himself to to one of the citizens of that country and and the citizen uh, Says, okay, you have to go feed pigs. Now, this is again very debasing for a, a Jewish person. So, this son is is descending lower and lower into shame. He's he's in a foreign country. He's dishonored his father. He has nothing by, by which to provide for himself. He has to hire himself out to a foreigner, and then the foreigner says, "Go feed the pigs." And then you think, well, that's as low as he can go. No, it gets lower. His desire becomes to even just be fed with the pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. He's completely, utterly alone and unable to provide for himself. What's the result of sin? It's need. It's misery. It's shame. Very interesting article. I was reading this, this last week about misery. It was from a secular perspective. But this the psychologist was arguing that misery is the result of, of people wanting something that they don't have too much or not wanting something that they already do have. And that desire can cause people to have misery. And I think as far as that lines up with what Scripture tells us, it's very true. But here's the really interesting thing to me, Okay. We've seen the reality of sin, and then we see the result of sin. sin leads to misery. But the very interesting thing to me is that even as people see the results of sin in their lives and, and realize the misery that sin brings, they don't turn. They keep on pursuing it. They, they double down. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was, I was listening to this, this uh interview of a person who'd won the lottery it was on the day that that big mega jackpot super duper lottery was being held and this person talked about all the miseries that that money had brought him and he talked about how it had ruined family relationships and and how it had ruined friends as they had loaned him money and not paid him back and then the radio host asked and have you entered this lottery oh absolutely i'm hopeful that if i win this one i can really turn things around what is that that's the reality of sin and as sin continues to bring us misery most often the time the case is that we fail to understand that we need to turn from it even still proverbs sixteen twenty five says there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death and here's what i want to encourage many of you with this morning there may be some of you who are young people who have convinced yourself that the morality that your family teaches, your parents have taught you, is, is not the right way to live. And you're convinced that as you pursue your own morality and and reject the, the teachings of God, then you're gonna find true happiness. And, and mom and dad just don't, or mom or dad, or grandparents don't know what they're talking about. I'm gonna pursue my own path, and there I'm gonna find happiness. Or maybe you're, you're an adult and, and you're engaged in, in some, some immorality and you've convinced yourself, if I continue down this path, I know it hasn't brought happiness so far, but, but I'm going to achieve the happiness that I deserve. And I know what God says about marriage. I know what God says about uh, physical relationships outside of marriage. I know what he says about lust and pornography. I know what he says about gossip or I know what he says about anger. But I'm convinced that if I continue down this path, it's going to finally bring me the pleasure that I so richly deserve and my words to you are the words of scripture. There is a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that seems right to a woman, but its end is death. Or as Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard. And so my plea to you this morning is this. Even if this morning you say, you know, Daniel, you don't know what you're talking about. My parents don't know what they're talking about. Other Christians don't know what they're talking about. You know, I can't help that. That's, that. that's between you and the Lord. But my plea with you is this. If you do decide to pursue a life of sin, remember these words of Scripture. And as you reach the bottom, say, oh yeah, this is exactly what God said would happen. There's a way that seemed right to me, but its result was death. The way of the transgressor is hard. And as I'm living this hard lifestyle, maybe, maybe I should turn from it. That's my plea to you this morning. It's my plea to my the tendencies within my own heart. It's my plea to each of us as we consider the result of sin and see its effects in our lives. Hey, this isn't so great. Result of sin death, unhappiness, a lack of pleasure? The way of the transgressor is hard, or as the Rolling Stones put it, I can't get no satisfaction. That's not canonical, but it's true. As we pursue the pleasures in this world, they will not lead to satisfaction. That's the result. That's the reality of sin, the result of sin. Now let's consider repentance from sin. What does repentance from sin look like? Well, we look at it in the story, and it's a beautiful picture of repentance. First of all, I love verse 17. What does verse 17 say? It says, when, when he came to himself, or, or when he came to his, his senses, you can just imagine him working with these pigs, and all of a sudden he goes, huh, this isn't really what I had in mind when I left Dad's house. What in the world am I doing? There's this intellectual comprehension. Man, this isn't the the pleasure that I I thought it would be. I have this vision for this crazy party lifestyle, and me and the pigs are having a real fine party. This isn't working. He comes to himself. He he, he realizes, well, this this uh, this is foolishness. Things are are bad for me now. This isn't working. And you know what? And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. Intellectual understanding. This is bad. Pig's bad. Dad, good. Things with dad are better. Things with dad are more delightful. In fact, he says, my father's hired servants are better off than this. There is more pleasure in the presence of my father as a servant than on my own with the pigs. I, I know what to do. Th- there's no joy in this. I I, I have a plan. I, I'm going to go up and, and go to my dad. And I'm going to say, Look, Dad, I, I've sinned. And I recognize that my sin is against heaven and it's against you. There, I've sinned against God the Father and I, I've sinned against you. I've, I've shamed both of you. And now there's a recognition that he doesn't deserve their forgiveness. He's going to say, look, I don't, I'm not worthy. There's no worth in me to be called your son. Go ahead and treat me as one of your hired servants. And then we're just going to stop at the beginning of verse 20 for, in terms of the text that we're considering this morning. And then he, he arose and he came to his father. He, he did what he had purposed to do. told you there's kind of three components of repentance. And I really want to touch on actually four aspects of repentance. And the problem is some of these categories really overlap. But but let me just kind of touch on, on four things related to repentance that we see here in the life of the Son. And I hope that you see in your own life the lives of others as you encounter repentance. Number one, you see the intellectual component of repentance. There's an intellectual recognition of sin. The son looks around at the mud and the pigs and the pods and his own growling stomach and he says, yeah, this is not the right way to live. This is not the right way to live. He is recognizing his, his sinful decisions like the kids and I and Whitney have been reading through the book of Proverbs in the evenings, and it's amazing uh, how uh, much the book of Proverbs deals with with the reality of sin and, and the right response to it, and this this intellectual component of, of how we need to recognize the dangers of sin. We were reading uh, in Proverbs chapter seven last uh, two, two nights ago, it talks about this this young person who's who's considering pursuing adultery. It says as he talks about this young man that that considers. Uh, going into this adulterous woman, it says in verse 22, He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. There's a lack of an intellectual recognition that, that what he's doing is, is wrong and foolish. So the first component of repentance is intellectual. It's understanding that that this, this activity that I'm engaged in is, is wrong. And I think one of the hardest things about being a, a parent of a child who's pursuing a prodigal lifestyle or one of the hardest things about being the friend of someone who's pursuing that lifestyle or, or the hardest thing about being about being a pastor of people who are pursuing a prodigal lifestyle is their intellect is so Deceived. They don't understand the reality of sin and the presence of sin and the foolishness of the decision. As a dad, as a pastor, as a friend, as looking at your own heart, asking God to shine the light of his truth into a person's life so they can understand the reality of sin is a, a huge thing. There's an intellectual component to, to repentance. They understand, look, this is wrong, and and, and getting through that hard heart is, is so difficult. Then secondly, there's an emotional reaction against sin that happens, and and it's not just in the head; it's in the heart as well. They they consider the sin and they say, "This isn't what I desire anymore." And what I love about this is the per, this this young man understands that being with his father as a hired servant is better than being a free person with the pigs. John Piper says this as he's talking about the desire of the son here, he says the focus here is is not on the service he can supply to the father. In other words, he's not saying, I'll be a hired hand, and and that's not the focus of his comments. He says the focus is on the incredible bounty and generosity that he has so foolishly traded for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Repentance is believing that God is so great and so good that the smallest enjoyments of his house are better than 10,000 worlds without him. Now our emotions can lead us astray, and sometimes, you know, 2 Corinthians 7 talks about this, talks about worldly grief, and we'll talk a little bit more about 2 Corinthians 7 in just a moment. There's worldly grief, and uh, you know, I, I'm a, I may not seem that way sometimes, but, but I'm a softie. And in, in years past, if, if you came in and, and you were talking to me about some sin, and, and you started crying, uh, my heart would just break, and I'd be like, hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, okay." and and, and unless, you know, you're doing great because you're sorry about your sin, I don't do that anymore. Because there is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. In other words, a person can cry a whole bunch of tears about sin that's in their heart, that's been in their life, and, and yet not truly be repentant. So there's an intellectual component of sin, and there's an emotional component of sin, but it's not just an emotional and intellectual. If those things aren't present, there's reason to be concerned, but it's not just emotion and just intellect. There's also, number three, a decision to turn from sin. It's volitional. It's, it's a, a, a movement of the will. A person who comes to the end of themselves and understands their need for God turns from sin. Luke 24, we see that repentance and forgiveness of sins are, are tied together and they should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts seventeen thirty. Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, not just intellectually understand sin, not just emotionally feel bad about sin, but to make the decision to turn from it. Now, The fourth thing we see about repentance, and this is the hard one. I want to be careful here. The fourth thing that we see about genuine repentance is that it produces fruit. It produces fruit. There's a fruit of repentance. Now, is the fruit of repentance the same thing as repentance? No. Repentance is not a work. And yet, if you do not see the fruit of repentance, you know that genuine repentance hasn't taken place. Repentance and its fruit are Linked together, you cannot have one without the other. We see the the fruit of repentance, and I mentioned this passage already in Second Corinthians seven. In Second Corinthians seven, as as uh, Paul is talking about some dishonor that was done to him and the need for repentance on the parts of some people, as he's he's talking about their their sin, he he talks about the worldly grief and the and godly grief. He talks about the worldly grief uh, leads to death. And then he says this in verse eleven that he's confident their, their grief was a godly grief. He says, For what this is Second Corinthians seven eleven. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And so, in other words, as a person genuinely repents, you see some proof. And Paul is able to look at their fruit and, and see some some genuineness to their conversion here's a couple questions that i ask people as i talk to them about their repentance based on second corinthians 7 one is this uh, are you earnest in your desire for change are you eager to have others closely look at your life sometimes a person can say yeah i'm repentant and then you start asking them questions and they get very defensive as we see defensiveness in our own lives, it reveals to us, look, I, I'm not truly repentant. Are you angry that you've offended a, a holy God? You have anger about your sin as you think about it in relationship to shaming God. Are you afraid of what will happen to you if you continue in sin? Are you longing? Are you longing to restore relationships with those that have, you've wronged? He says here you're zealous. Are you zealous in your pursuit of holiness? He says here you're, you're avenging of wrong. Are you avenging the wrong you've done to others? you Are you working to, to recompense them? The message of Luke 15 is that you should rejoice when the lost repent. But what is it about repentance that's so great, that's so wonderful? What happens to repentance is that a person understands that they've offended a holy, righteous God. They've shamed him. And a person who repents comes to their senses. They understand, wow, this thing that I've been engaged in is wrong. I, I don't desire it anymore. I, I hate it. And, I, and I'm, I'm turning from it. No more. And then they see the beauty of fruits of repentance. Do you see how beautiful that is? Do you see what an act of God repentance is? Do you see why you and I should rejoice when we re- see repentance in our lives? and the lives of others. It's only the repentant heart that can turn away from sin, turning to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and and turn from shaming God, and dishonoring God, and attacking His character and His holiness to being an instrument that worships Him and proclaims His glory among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for repentance, for the ability that you give us to turn from sin to faith in you. Give us the ability to continue to do that and to call others to do the same. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.